Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast, helping to improve the understanding and treatment of pain across the world through education, advice from experts in the field, personal stories from those living well with pain, and more. A modern approach to pain treatment, management, and education, while helping to bring the patient voice back to healthcare. This is the Modern Pain Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Mark Cardula. What's going on, everybody? It is Mark Cardula, lead faculty and CEO here at Modern Pain Care, where we make you the complete clinician. Coming today with another clinical topic to help you guys in clinic. We've had enough of Jared and I soapboxing on various topics and uh, wanted to just talk about some topics, a lot of things we've learned from mentors and folks that we've uh, had the privilege of kind of learning from in our careers and some things that we hope to pass on to you guys. Um, as you listen and you are in the trenches, the coal faces on in the front lines of the clinic struggling and trying to help people. So hopefully today's episode will be another addition or positive addition to your practice. Um, before we get into today's topic, let's see how our co-host is doing. How are you doing, Jared Hall? I am doing just fantastic this morning. You know, it's a beautiful Thursday morning. The sun is not up yet, but it should be coming over the horizon uh, shortly, you know, because you and I like to get up and get after it early. Um, but all in all, my life is going in the right direction. How about yours, Mark? You know, can't complain. I'm also excited. We uh, just, you know, enrolled our first folks in our uh, supercharged coaching mentorship program, and I've been excited. We've been doing calls with people, diving into practices, getting to know people at a, a as far as clinically at a level that, um, you know, we can. I start to see some of the opportunities. We got to make some positive impact with folks, so I'm excited. Just from that, it's been great getting to talk with some people and different things. But on a personal level, life's good. Uh, you know, jobs doing the job thing it's i'm happy to be working and uh you know covid has been a challenge for a lot of us i've been privileged to not have any disruptions in my employment too significantly and uh you know you know you know definitely heart goes out to folks who've had some challenges on the employment front and financial front with some of this tough stuff that's been going on but i've been thankful for that and you know family's been healthy wife and i are both vaccinated fully for two shots um, daughter's been healthy so you know can't complain but let's let's dive into today's uh, topic today. So you know, one thing that uh, we frequently talk about clinically in our and in our uh, coursework is you know where do neurodynamics fit in? Because it seems to be one of those things where um, you know it's, it sometimes gets to be one of those. Oh, it's a technique we got to use. <coughs> neuro's in it, so it's got to be sweet and cool, and you're 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 moving nerves around in the maybe the craze of neuroscience that's come around. Uh, some of the new information on pain, and rightfully so, I think we should be thinking about neuroscience, but you know, obviously, where do we put it in perspective with a patient in clinics? So neurodynamics, you know, how do we employ them in clinics successfully, and, and what are some maybe some thinking processes, some overarching thinking processes that we should be using as we're figuring out where it fits with the person in front of us, that unique N equals one in front of us. So what are your thoughts on neurodynamics, Jared? Where do you think we should start today to help folks kind of navigate this topic in clinic? So, I mean, I, I actually use neurodynamics quite a bit. Uh, I, I, I like to use it quite a bit in my assessment process, and I do use it a fair amount in specifically in treatment as well, but I, I think that I have a little bit different way of looking at neurodynamics than maybe the traditional way that it's taught, uh, maybe the way that it's taught in school, and maybe even the way that it's taught in some of the continuing education courses. Um, and I, that's kind of what I wanted to get into today is, the maybe some of the misconceptions about what's going on when we do neurodynamic type exercises, but you know, in in 
in my examination, I, I'm going to regularly look at, you know, a straight leg raise test or a slump test or a, you know, a sideline straight leg raise test. I'm, go I'm going to look at kind of neurodynamic loading with maybe the lumbar spine in different positions, whether it's flexion or extension. And, and same thing, I might do the same thing in the cervical spine, whether it's, uh, you know, an upper limb tension test for the median nerve or the, the radial nerve. I might do that with a bias uh, away or towards side bending or into extension or into flexion just to see <clears throat> if that changes anything, right? If, if maybe the reason a person is having some sort of neurological symptoms is uh, heavily influenced by the positioning of their spine, which, you know, we can circle back around to a couple of episodes when we talked about uh, repeated motions exams and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely go back and listen to that episode first and then come back to this episode because I think it'll flow a little bit better. Yeah. Um, but th the way that I see it is tissues, tissues can't be sensitive without neural pathways, right? We're getting all of the nociceptive information from, uh, you know, an inflammatory process or, you know, some sort of chemical or mechanical process that has to flow up those, uh, nerve, those nerve pathways that we have towards the spinal cord and towards the brain. So they carry a lot of information. So I, I think that putting tension on them sometimes, putting mechanical load on them may be of value to at least look at and help with your reasoning process. What about you, Mark? No, I, I definitely think, you know, neurodynamics common part of my practice for sure. Definitely something I'm assessing and I'm thinking about it, uh, you know, not just with neurodynamic tests, uh, you know, like, and maybe we have to break this up upper quarter, lower quarter, not as I start thinking and unpacking as you're starting to talk and different things, but we'll, let's just, we'll stay maybe overarching. And if we want to dive into some specifics, because I think there's some neurodynamic pearls, especially when we talk about specific extremity issues that I think traditionally we've thought, oh, that's a local tissue issue that you can really unpack and maybe uncover some mechanisms neurodynamically if you have some good skill sets to, to dive into, you know, testing sensitivity of those things. But, you know, definitely something that uh, is a common thing in clinic um, and used at the right time for the right patient and, and with the right kind of mechanism on board or thought process. So the, the mechanism, I think, is a good thing you bring up because I, I think traditionally there's been this belief that and i and michael shacklock's probably been the one that's been and if you want to learn neurodynamics there's your guy right there just to go i mean there's a lot of people teaching it but i think he's probably doing the best and it's probably the best he's got textbooks and he goes around teaches we probably need to see if we can get michael shacklock on the podcast another one that's on our list of to, to get on here but um really moving away from this dialogue of neural tension because and i am picky with students on that because i do think this neural tension of terminology is a way where we use language and it, it's just not speaking correctly to the mechanism of what's going on. And the mechanism of what's going on is yes, there could be compressive load on a nerve. There could be actual physical mechanical interference with the nerve. Maybe it's a narrowing of stenotic, foraminal stenotic, whatever it may be, peripheral nerve entrapment, although I don't think they're as common. Maybe I'm blind to them and missing them, of course, too, but I think statistically probably not as common as what we'd, we'd think. But um, this belief of neural tension is where all of a sudden it gives us this carte blanche to go yank on nerves, which if you've used neurodynamics in clinic at all or over a significant period of time, you have aggravated your share of patients' conditions without thoughtful use of this. And I've hopefully today with some of the zooming out a little bit and then, hey, what's more than going on here besides just mechanical things of stuck nerves and I'm yanking on stuck nerves because that ain't what happen, is happening in a good chunk of our patients. And if we treat it like that, we have a good chance of irritating our share of patients. 
Um, what's been like, let's let's help folks kind of understand a little bit of kind of big picture, because if you look at Bob Nee's work, David Butler's work, Michael Shacklock's work, we'll, we'll link some articles in the show notes to help you guys get a good deep dive reading on it. The, the Nee Butler article is probably one of the better ones that looks kind of just kind of neurobiologically at some of the mechanisms at play here. If you want to get nerd out heavy, um, I'll, we'll link that in there. But um, what's been kind of if you look at things mechanistically, when you're when you're applying neurodynamics in clinic, you know, how do you kind of get past just strictly looking at stuck nerves, Jared, and where? when maybe might that enter your thought process versus what some other thought processes you have in clinic? I mean, the way that I look at it is I have no possible way of knowing if a nerve is like quote unquote stuck or it or anything like that. I don't have MRI vision. I don't have CT scan vision. I cannot know if that nerve is not physically moving. What I can know is that if I put some load through it, does it have a response and what type of response does it have? Um, so the, the, the traditional narrative is that we do these, uh, you know, neural sliders, maybe where your hand in your head, we'll say for the cervical spine are going in the same direction. And then once that's all good, then maybe you just do the hand and you don't move the head because you're not sliding it as much. You're doing a little bit less aggressive slide. And then maybe your head starts going the opposite direction and you're doing like a quote unquote tensioner. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not of the opinion that you know hand and head together is superior on sliding i just think that it's less low to allow a little bit of slack on the nerve roots or maybe there's something going on with the cervical spine that makes it less mechanically sensitive there so i don't get caught up in all these details about sliders and tensioners and stuck nerves and entrapped nerves i want to see if i put some load on a nerve how does that person respond is it painful does it feel like a stretch? Does it feel good to them? Does it cause like acute exacerbation? How long does that exacerbation last? You know, at what RPE or what intensity do they feel that sort of load or that, you know, that sensation that they're having? And then I, I view it exactly the same as, you know, the, the current concept of stretch tolerance. For muscles. Well, you know, we used to think, hey, I'm going to stretch my hamstrings. I'm just going to lengthen those bad boys out. You know, you take it to a point of stretch and you stretch it for six weeks and your hamstrings get more flexible because they lengthen out. Well, now we know it's a heck of a lot more complex than that. And probably the vast majority, you know, 99% of increase in flexibility is due to an improvement in stretch tolerance or a reduced responsiveness to the nociception that occurs when you stretch the heck out of a muscle. Well, I, I view neurodynamics as simply a form of neural loading, just like I would load the hamstrings in a stretch or just like I would load the pecs into a stretch or whatever it is. I am trying to get as specific as I can, at least, to loading a nerve with mechanical tension. That, that's literally all it is. And, uh, you know, I try to find a person's entry point to loading and very often in clinic, you know, I don't have to start with a slider with somebody because they're not that irritable. I can jump straight into, you know, loading it as hard as I can, taking it into a maximum load if that's not something that flares up their symptoms. And then you alluded to this earlier. I might use a lot of exercises that 
go into positions that put more tensions on the nerves. We were talking before we came on the episode about maybe prone T's or doing shoulder abductions or maybe doing chest flies or, you know, maybe if I, if it's the lower extremity, maybe I'm doing some easy deadlifts or maybe I am doing some hamstring stretches with different durations of load, right? Or different durations where maybe it's, I'm stretching it for a second. Maybe I'm stretching it for five seconds. Maybe I'm stretching it for 10 seconds because those are all a different volume of mechanical load to the tissues. And and when you start thinking about it as load, you can start getting super creative with the dosing that you do and and the creativity of the exercises that you go into. Yeah, no, and I think if you look at some of the mechanisms, I'm just going to kind of zoom back a little bit. Great points, I would agree wholeheartedly with, but you know, there is some signs and some in the, the knee Butler article, and this is how we teach it as far as, hey, there's signs that there could be mechanical compression. Again, I agree with Jared, you know, in the end, does it matter? I think in certain cases, if you're seeing stenotic, consistent behavior, that the presentation is, is really consistent, then yeah, maybe you're looking, okay, I need to do some more things to kind of decompress from the neck and, and have them maybe doing some more opening things from the neck as they start doing um, some of the neurodynamic loading where they're not just, you know, compressing on it and yanking on it and I know that's what you know you're at with it or where you're at with the Jared but um, also recognizing though that it does not need any mechanical interference to behave pretty similarly if not exactly the same a nerve can get irritated from just a disc that's herniated that's got a massive inflammatory response that the disc isn't necessarily pressuring the nerve but the inflammation has got that nerve really lit up and sensitive and the nerve will, will demonstrate mechanical sensitivity to load in both situations now our job is to figure out what might be causing that. And that's where, again, you do a good clinical examination to determine, does it sound like it's discogenic and there might be some things. Because I will tell you, and from firsthand experience with having raging neurodynamics after a, her- a herniated disc in my back, that if you start going tugging on nerves where there's a, an issue like that, like a herniated disc, I would argue that I and I don't think I did too much in the way I did a little bit of neurodynamic techniques, mainly as you know as I started to start getting back into loading. You know, good mornings, deadlifts, very light stuff. Um, even worked into some Jefferson curls. You know, really light loads and stuff. You know, and that was down probably eight to twelve weeks post. Because again, you're not going to do that acutely in a herniated disc unless you want to you know not have a patient come back or you want to speed up the surgical process. That might might be a way to do it, but. It's just knowing that what's the condition, what's the nature of the condition under that you're dealing with and have a good clinical examination process. Say, hey, this looks like it's discogenic. You know what, probably, I don't need to start you know, yanking on nerves right now. Because a, a lot of times you start quieting down the discogenic inflammatory process. You teach them some loading strategies, maybe some extension things to take load off the posterior annulus to help the healing process and all that stuff. And lo and behold, the neurodynamics clear up without really touching them. Um, uh, but then you still got to get people still might have some residual sensitivity to start elongating that tissue. That tissue doesn't just magically like snap its finger and hey, it's all all that sensitivity is gone. Then you get to what Jared talked about. You start you know, moving in functional patterns of movement in ways that are valued for the patient and start engaging it. And you do the test, treat, retest. Hey, how's how's it feeling during? Has your nudge and what is that? Is it getting is it staying about the same? Or are you getting easier? How's it feeling for you? As a result of doing this stuff, do you feel like movement's any different than it was earlier? And then you start finding what things are starting to let things load more comfortably, and then you start, you know, having people move into those loads. But it, there's also discussions like in the MDT world of an adhered nerve root, and it does tend to. I think there there's can be some clinical credence. It's not a common thing, but um, where you know there's this this stiff straight leg raise. It's been more than eight to twelve weeks post uh, discogenic issue or derangement. If you're talking MDT. 
and now it's just this end range nervy peripheralizing thing that gets no worse as you load it then freaking load it then you're getting into you're doing good mornings you're doing deadlifts you're doing stuff at a load that obviously you dose to where the patient's at and you start having them load into it versus uh, but again that's where you have to have a thoughtful process to know when where and how much uh, with the patient and that's you know you just get these techniques and just you, you just do the mud at the wall technique which was my kind of unfortunate reasoning process early in my career is like i got all these tools let me just take the freaking box and just throw it at the patient and then you know, hopefully off the, <clears throat> off the other side of that there's gonna be some improvement i have no idea what did it but if they feel better i feel better because they feel better and uh I've, I've learned nothing so again why don't we make the clinic a good teaching environment and you can teach yourself from each n equals one which is again where we try to teach folks in our, our programming so you can not mud on the wall approach and not learn from yourself for the first five to six years of your career and then you just get frustrated and want to quit and all these things so don't do that you know learn learn how to think in clinic and that'll help you a lot but anyway i delved off there a little bit jared so what else do you think we need to discuss with these folks about neurodynamics and kind of utilizing them in clinic well, man, you, you mentioned something that I think deserves a little bit more discussion um, because it's something I've seen with literally every student that I have taken. I mean, we're talking like 20 students in clinic and every single one of them has made this mistake. And that is, oh, man, this person has kind of like a, a cervical radiculopathic type presentation and we do a repeated motions exam and oh man uh right side bending really kind of lights up their symptoms they, they do that spurlings test and they load it and they're like oh gosh that really gets all of this pain going in my right arm and then they go to do a neurodynamic exercise and they freaking do right side bending <laughs> they do that slider because you're in the mindset of well i've got to slide that nerve i've got to slide it slide it slide it slide it and you're not piecing together, hey, yeah, you're you're mechanically loading that nerve, and that's a, that's a good thing, but you're literally doing the thing that exacerbates their symptoms along with that because you're so focused on having to slide the nerve instead of zooming out and saying, you know what, maybe maybe they would actually do really good with a quote unquote tensioner because you're maybe unloading the mechanical aspect of the neck that irritates whatever that process is and then you're doing a nice little nerve tension or a nice little mechanical nerve loading and all of a sudden th their symptoms get better instead of getting massively worse doing that repeated side bend slider yeah it's kind of like the the uh this we get students who regularly like i need to go through my range of motion exam and i need to put over pressure on things if somebody already actively side bends and lights up their symptoms down their arm, you probably don't need to do it. Even if the test item <laughs> cluster for Redix says that you ha you should to get the information, maybe the patient's conditions already told you that. Hey, if you you I go there, they go there actively, they get it. Maybe I don't need to go and refund it, uh, you know, passively. But I, I agree. I think sometimes, and this is the tough thing as you're starting to learn to piece these things together in clinic. All things Jared and I have both struggled with as we were kind of navigating this early in our careers as far as seeing the big picture of, hey, yes, this does, a slider would be possibly helpful in this condition, but part of that slider is also ipsilateral side bending, which is irritating their condition. So maybe I need to, like Jared said, be a little bit more mindful of what's going on in that technique and, and adjust it to the person in front of you. But again, that's just, again, you, you can't treat, you can't just use generic techniques of, of and theory behind it. You have to be able to take that theory, you know, again, the Maitland semi-permeable brick wall concept, it's all theory and it means zip until you can bring it through that wall and it makes a meaningful change for the patient that 
moves them in a positive direction versus everything comes through the wall. There's, it's, it's so permeable that anything that has a theory behind it and shiny reasoning behind it, I just bring it in and don't have a useful reasoning process to kind of come out the other side to see if it's worth using and do it, does it bring my patient in a positive direction by some retest afterwards. So yeah, it's uh, good points you bring up there for sure. So maybe in future episodes, Jared, what we do is we take upper limb uh, stuff and start doing some of the nuance behind, because I think with when we start talking medial lateral elbow pain, lateral wrist pain, you know, the queer veins, tennis elbow, medial, um, you know, golfer's elbow, all these things, I think it's a must that you have some neurodynamic ways to start checking these things out and not always assuming that it is in fact you know, a tendinopathy that's behind it. Or maybe it's a tendinopathy, but there's also some, you know, neuro neurodynamic con contributions to it. Same thing when we look lower quarter. Let's talk about, you know, Achilles tendinopathies. Let's talk about lateral ankle pain. Let's talk about, you know, knee pain that can be, you know, different things that can be neurodynamics masquerading. Plantar fasciitis is definitely definitely one that I see with uh, working alongside some podiatry folks that doesn't get considered of a neurodynamic. Um, I got some interesting case studies that I can share with folks with that. But Hopefully this episode, and we'll let Jared kind of wrap up with anything else we, and maybe we go a little further, but um, I just wanted to make sure you guys feel like you got some value of this episode. Reach out to us. If there's any questions you have on neurodynamic loading and stuff, we're happy to help you out as far as point you to some resources. We will definitely link some uh, articles in the show notes so you can kind of dive in and start thinking um, of how to apply this in a more reasoned, uh, patient-centered approach with it. Anything else you wanted to add to this before we finished up today, Jared? No, you know, it just what you mentioned, <laughs> I'm getting on a tangent, but what you mentioned about plantar fasciitis, I was just, uh, I was just having a discussion with one of the people in our uh, coaching um, mentorship group, seeing a person with, you know, quote unquote, plantar fasciitis, and, uh, you know, they hadn't done a really good lumbar screen. And uh, this person had been through injections, they had been through custom orthoses, they had been through the ringer, you know, with every every sort of treatment and taping and aggressive manual therapy and dry needling and injections and everything to their to their heel to fix their plantar fasciitis and literally nobody had screened the lumbar spine and that's just something that we talked about like hey you know just on a brief text conversation and a quick uh you know voice conversation back and forth and lo and behold screening out the lumbar spine actually uh show, showed some value and this person was able to you know help you know, I don't want to say fix, right? But that's the that's the word that the patient used. You were able to fix me, quote unquote, in a session or two, instead of after I've been through a year of this stuff. And you know, that's that's one of the big wins. That's one of the things that we feel super good about. That's not what happens every time, but that was just front of mind, just because you just mentioned this, and uh, you know, it was cool to be able to help somebody that hadn't uh, thought of that or looked at that because they were focusing on the diagnosis and, you know, every, all of the treatment that the patient had already had instead of really zooming out and, and looking at it with fresh eyes. Yeah, no, that's, that's the fun stuff. That's why I love what we're doing at modern pain care with our coaching and mentorship. It's just, I get fired up when I see folks get results like that in the clinic and it just good thinking, good, solid clinical reason, uh, you know, critical thinking and being able to kind of really look deep into a patient's condition, not really, getting that framing bias of the everybody's framed it as this local foot issue to you so you just dive into a you know blast in the foot and i've been there done that myself so i'm having a good process where you don't let anybody's uh pre-framed re prescription or diagnosis you use your brain and your knowledge and your top of your license to 
best help people and I think uh, we've been excited to be able to get involved in some people's practices and help them out if that's something you're interested in you're feeling man I need to get this help because I'm fighting and struggling you're you might be at the point where you're ready to quit like I was five years into my career I'll reach out to Jared and I we're happy to have a conversation with you and see if there's a, a good fit for us to help and coach you along a little bit in your practice because uh, we don't want people to struggle like that as far as because it's the reasoning and thinking does not get taught and you get you get taught to be safe in clinic as a student and then you're thrown into this massively gray confusing world that can can almost break you and some <laughs> folks that unfortunately can't it has um, so let, let's not let that be you reach out to us if you have any uh, problems but definitely keep on uh, peeking at the podcast we'll be sharing stuff like this that hopefully brings you value in your practice if there's anything else we can talk about reach out to us we're happy to do that we'll send you resources all that good stuff we just want to see people um, pushing a needle forward and helping produce better clinical practice you're going to help more people you're going to change your communities better you're going to have the, the impact that we're trying to have at modern pain care so hope you guys enjoyed the episode uh, thanks for listening and we will talk to you next time this has been another episode of the modern pain podcast with dr mark Car- Join us next time as we continue our journey to help change the story around pain. For more information on the show, visit modernpaincare.com. Also, visit the Pain Masterminds Network on Facebook for free education and resources. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. Please consult a licensed professional for your specific medical needs. Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast.